Welcome back or welcome to the Single Track Podcast. I'm your host, Finn Melanson, and in this episode, we are talking with Caleb Efta, one of the race directors for the High Lonesome 100 in the Sawatch Range of Colorado. Caleb joins the show to explain why UTMB races have been excluded from the qualifying process for High Lonesome, and this sets the table for a really interesting conversation about the values of our sport, the nature and purpose of community events, and the increasing commercialization and professionalization in this space. If you must know, and it's probably not a surprise, I support many of the High Lonesome policies, like their positions on gender equity, pregnancy deferral, and non-binary identification. That may ruffle some feathers, and that's okay. At the same time, I am also a huge supporter of the UTMB World Series and what they're trying to do standardizing the professional area of the sport. I've been to the race in Chamonix each of the last two summers and have loved every minute of it. I'm also unabashedly a huge fan of commercialization and professionalization of trail running. None of that should be a surprise either, but I recognize that may alienate some folks as well, and that's okay. I say all this because it's both important and unimportant. I certainly have my views, and you deserve to know my biases, but I never want my voice to dominate the dialogue or this podcast to get to a place where it's simply a platform for everything I believe in or where I feel pressure to kowtow to my quote-unquote tribe. And while Caleb and I probably agree on 65% of the topics addressed in this conversation, maybe even 75% honestly, undoubtedly there will be guests in the future where that percentage is somewhere in the range of 0 to 35%. And I think that's a healthy thing. The marketplace of ideas is too sacred, in my opinion, for single track to be an unrealistic bubble or echo chamber. It's also, frankly, unfair to you, the listener, if it falls short of that aim. Substantive conversation is good, and regularly having our worldviews challenged is good. In the context of this conversation, for example, I would love to have a representative from UTMB or Ironman on the show as soon as possible to ask similar questions so you have a chance to fully listen to their points of view and dissect the situation at hand. Anyways, and I apologize for being long-winded. With all that said, thank you so much to Caleb for agreeing to come on the show and his willingness to answer any questions I wanted to ask. I do hope at some point we have an opportunity for a round two because there was still so much to be covered by the time this one ended. One more thing before we dive in, I promise I'm getting off my soapbox in a second. Thank you genuinely to Rabbit. I love what Monica, Kevin, and the rest of the team are doing there. They are fellow diehards in this sport. They live and breathe what you and I do. They are super fans and getting after it every day, and it shows in the products they make. So if you're looking for some new trail running apparel, I encourage you to head over to their website, and if you want to support the podcast in the process, use code SINGLETRACK20 at checkout, and you will receive a nifty 20% off your order. With that, let's get started. Caleb Efta, welcome to the Single Track Podcast. Thanks for having me. I want to read this quote from a recent Trail Runner Magazine article and then talk a bit about it before we get into the relationship between UTMB and High Lonesome. Luke Nelson, who among other roles serves as the race director for the Scout Mountain Ultras up in Idaho, said, quote, as UTMB moves their empire into the U.S., we need to have a reckoning as a community about what we value. This is a great doorway into those conversations. 
races are a great pedestal to talk about what's valued in the sport, end quote. And I suppose for you, the question here is two-parted. A, do you think our community needs to have a reckoning about what we value? And B, do you think races are a good forum for all of this to be hashed out? I would answer yes to both. Um, I think we always need to be reckoning with our values um, because as humans and societies evolve, our values naturally evolve with them. Uh, and that's part of progress and growth and individual growth and community growth is, is always looking at what we're doing and asking, you know, can we do it better? Should we be doing it differently? Um, and I think races give a really good vantage point for a lot of those conversations because they touch a lot of different and disparate aspects. Um, mm. But I also think they're not the only place um, or even necessarily for all conversations, the best place to have those conversations. One thing we should do, I think, to also set the table, uh, we should maybe talk for just 30 seconds about who you are, your role <laughs> in the community, High Lonesome. I will say, though, there is an excellent podcast that you and your partner and co-race director Kelsey did with Scotty Sandow on the Old Training Magazine show. Great episode if you want to get to know your background and stuff. But I do think it's important just to cover it very briefly. Yeah. So for folks that are not familiar with you and what you do... Um, how are you involved in our sport? Yeah, um, well, I, my name is Caleb, and uh, first and foremost, I'm a runner. So I've been running ultras since 2010, I think was my first one. Um, my wife, Kelsey Banishinsky, and I co-own Freestone Endurance, which puts on three trail running races um, in the Arkansas River Valley of the central Colorado mountains. And we live in a town called uh, Buena Vista, or if you're local and want to mispronounce it, it's pronounced Buena Vista. Um, and uh, we've been operating High Lonesome, which was our first race, which is um, you know, a hundred mile race that is sort of on the table for today's topic. Um, that first started in 2017 and we added a few 50Ks in 2021. Getting right into it, it's been outlined on the website and it's been discussed on social media as well as in various media outlets. But for folks who have not tuned into those sources who are somehow not in the know, can you explain why the UTMB races were excluded from the qualification process for the High Lonesome 100? And I will add, I know you've had other policies in place dating back to 2019 that have disassociated the race from UTMB, but uh, maybe talk about you know what the policy is and, and why it went into effect. Yeah, well, I think it's... Um best to start from the very beginning in 17 and 18 our first two years of the race we um were part of the pay to play qualification process where you um it was mostly through the itra and there was some formula to dictate how much and, and we opted for that because we had some runners who reached out and us like hey can you we want to run utmb can you do this so we did it um and you know it's not great to pay money for that kind of thing but it was an easy ask and then in 2019 um, they kind of changed their process further. We looked at it and just said, you know, we're not really interested in having a process monetized by uh, another race that doesn't really affect our race. So we bowed out. And that was around the time when Hard Rock and Bighorn and a bunch of other races kind of wrote that open letter um, criticizing the process. Um, so it was sort of in vogue at the time. Hmm. And in 2021, uh, in the spring of 21, Ironman and UTMB announced a joint venture or partnership of some kind. Um, 
And that was sort of the nail in the coffin, proverbially, for, for the relationship between our race. Um, we felt, and obviously we'll get into more of the details here, but we felt that that was something that was contrary to the values of both ourselves and the sport as we see it. So we, you know, basically it was a very brief conversation with Kelsey, myself, and a few other people on the team and just said, Hey, we think we should, uh, not let UTMB races be qualifiers. What do you guys think? And everybody was sort of like, sure. Seems like a pretty easy thing. So we rolled that out a few months later. Um, and the way our qualifying window works is there's different tiers depending on the distance. So the, um, in the middle of 2021, people were qualifying for 2022 for the 2022 highlights. Mm. So we didn't want to jerk the rug out from under people. It felt cruel and unnecessary. So um, the policy officially affected the 2023 race for the first time, but that began to influence people's qualifying in 2022. Mm. Um, and we have had it on the website and it's been you know, getting an email here or there every couple of months for the past almost two years. And then uh, about three weeks ago, uh, um, a person with a decent platform on Twitter posted a question to Twitter uh, and it sort of sparked a lot of attention towards the policy. My understanding is that the high lonesome race has been incredibly progressive in many areas of race policy. You know, with the transgender non-binary component, runners are encouraged to register as their identified gender with the gender equity policy, you know, more women are encouraged and, and able to run the race. Uh, there's a few others on there, the Ute policy, for example. I think you kind of mentioned it there, but to put it in concrete terms, what problems are you trying to solve for runners by enacting this UTMB policy? Or is it more just a blanket values response? Um, I wouldn't say it's a blanket values response, but values are, are central to this. Um, we're effectively forcing people to do a race to qualify for high loans. That's the way our, our lottery structure and qualification mm -hmm. requirements are set up. Um, so if we're going to require something, we want that something to be consistent with our values. Um, and we have, you know, I think three or four other say restrictions on the qualifying process. There's a you know, distance restriction, a time window restriction. Uh, has to have a certain amount of, of, of trail in it. You can't just mm. be on pavement. So this is sort of just another example of that. And qualifying is sort of a, a, a cocktail of different variables. Some of it's you know, safety, some of it's uh, entry controls, and some of it's you know, value-oriented thinking. So it was sort of a mix. Um, the main thing that we see, though, is UTMB's business model that they're pursuing and and by the way it's important to reference that utmb now is synonymous with all 33 races it's not just the mont blanc tour around yep. um you know chamonix so um yeah we felt that that was something that was really threatening to a lot of the core values of the sport and um was something that we hadn't ever seen on a scale we had never seen in the sport um and we didn't want to be you know either intentionally or unintentionally using our platform to advocate for something that we felt wasn't aligned with our values. Mm. And do you believe that by being silent in the case of UTMB, not having a policy, for example, around uh, gender equity or not having a policy around non-binary non runners, by default, they are taking the quote unquote, regressive position here on those circumstances? 
and regrets. I, I, I hesitate to assign a, a label to it because it's a complex topic. Mm. Um, I do think that UTMB is not advocating for the sport to the level that their platform would allow and that they've been sort of reticent and almost grudging in some of the changes they've made over the past decade that people have been asking for consistently around gender issues reinforces that perception. Mm. So I, you know, regressive and progressive are sort of these very um, supercharged terms, especially when you affiliate them with politics, which is yeah. why I'm, I'm reticent to use it. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think, you know, there's, there's certainly this like middle of the room stance that races are in most races are in this where they're just sort of doing what's been done. And, you know, they each focus a little bit on something that's passionate for them and they do that. Um, and there's other races um, like us and, and some of the newer races like Hard Rock that are doing some more progressive stuff with their their lotteries. And see, I just use the word progressive. Um, and I think UTMB is is definitely on on the very slow end of adapting to some of yeah. the things that the sport wants to see. Yeah, in that policy statement, and I think you mentioned it here in the conversation too, you said that UTMB consistently fails to take action on important issues in our sport in your opinion, have they been completely silent or has there been any evidence that they, they do have a position one way or another, or they've explained why they've been silent? Yeah. Great question. Um, UTMB has a lot of public statements about certain things. Um, one of the things that I do appreciate about how they often approach a topic is they make a press release. It's, mm. it's a helpful and concise way of sort of intuiting a lot and getting a lot of the facts straight the first time. Um, you don't only communicate with words though. You can communicate through omission and you can communicate through action. And so uh, I would say that they take a lot of positions. They're, they're taking every position essentially and every action and, and policy and decision that they have reflects a position. So to say they've been silent is perhaps the wrong phrasing. It's yeah. more that they haven't responded and they've responded in many times with silence towards some of the requests and feedbacks and potentially even criticisms that people have leveled at them. Are there ways for you as the race director of the High Lonesome 100 to easily or possibly connect with, for example, Michael Paletti or Andrew Messick or anybody at Ironman or UTMB to request a comment or an explanation from them personally before, uh, you know, creating the policy you have at High Lonesome or, and I guess my question there is like, ha have you made that effort or do you think that that is important to do? We did not reach out to UTMB to ask for a comment. Um, UTMB did not reach out to ask us for a comment before they announced their partnership with Ironman. Um, these are internal business things and to ask people for commentary that don't have a role in making those business decisions would be sort of a weird look. Mm -hmm. um, if we had a relationship and there was some form of um, collaboration happening, then yeah, that would make a lot of sense to reach out. But I would, I would hesitate or, or venture to say that I doubt UTMB, I doubt Michael Paletti probably even knew about our race prior to, you know, at least the past couple of weeks. Um, 
And I've seen other inquiries towards UTMB have a press specific email, which you know sort of implies it's going to a person whose job is sort of managing these conversations from a publicity standpoint. Mm. Um, so no, I, I did not reach out. I don't think it's necessary in this kind of situation. I think it, it certainly wouldn't hurt, would be my suspicion. Mm. Um, but it's not a fact-finding mission. We actually have the facts. They they have communicated the facts. There are multiple interviews and articles from Trailrunner outside, international sources, Hong Kong news, you know, where they're interviewing these key figures in the group. Um, and so, you, you know, there's a lot of information out there about UTMB because they're such a big entity. Um, so no, we didn't reach out. Um, I'm, I'm down to talk to them. I just, I don't know what it would necessarily accomplish at this point. I think in between the time that you and I scheduled this interview and as we're recording now, there was this trail runner magazine article that I quoted at the top of the conversation where I guess they did get in touch with Michael Paletti and mm -hmm. he was acknowledging, you know, some of the issues or, or lack of policies around some, like, you know, gender equity, stuff like that. And one of the quotes, he says, the reasons for, you know, delays on action are varied for gender equity. Paletti cited the difficulty of creating a policy that, quote, fits the global perspective and, quote, and not being comfortable with positive discrimination, end quote, which means a policy that favors a, a specific gender regarded as disadvantaged. Do you have any thoughts on the comments he made in that article? And I, I apologize if I didn't <laughs> repeat those perfectly. No, no. I was impressed at your ability to quote within a quote for a quote. <laughs> <laughs> That's a tough Inception. Thing. Inception. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, say the question for me one more time so I know I'm answering it right. So I guess the question is, what are your thoughts on his explanations for why UTMB has been slower than races like Western states are high lonesome in addressing these issues and, uh, you know, in, in, in the case of this conversation being progressive. Yeah. Well, to preface this, you're asking my thoughts there. You know, so they would be able to answer this more factually than I possibly can. So this is my perception outside looking in. Um, I don't, I don't know why. I think it's fair to say that, uh, you know, the transgender non-binary stuff has only recently really come to the forefront. And so, you know, we, we being High Lonesome and Freestone Endurance actually added our policy once we saw Western states add it. Um, yeah. And we took that opportunity to put in a non-binary component, which we're actually currently reviewing with some help from some outside groups. Um, and I, I don't think it's, it's in the same category as the gender stuff. Um, I think it's easy to do, and I don't know why races aren't doing it. It's a very simple process. It's very easy to be inclusive and to have fair competition. But the gender stuff is a harder topic because UTMB has been having this conversation in some capacity now for the past decade. Um, and it's, it's just constant drip of gender inequities. And, and we're not talking about, you know, I shouldn't say even equity, it's, it's, it's qualities. It's just being on parity with men. You know, um, in the Trail Runner article, they referenced Rory Bozio's comments about the podiums being shorter. There's mm. prize money yeah. um, inequities. There's the fact that they were highlighting 
way more men than women in the elite field prep stuff that they were doing. And you, and you just look at it and you're like, look, this isn't, this is not rocket science. This is something that's been part of the conversation and running since the sixties. Um, and, and to be so much on the back foot and responding to these things instead of just stopping for a moment and saying, okay, what are all the places that we just need to hit once baffles me. And it, it can't be an issue of capacity. And it's certainly not an issue of braveness because UTMB is ridiculously bold. I mean, to make a partnership on this scale with a brand as polarizing as Ironman to, to, to go into the global ultra running market with this much money is incredibly bold. So you can't convince me that they're not willing to take a stand on something else because they're doing that in many other places. Hmm. Um, so, so I don't know. And I think that that was a very, you know, compelling reason why we didn't feel like um, we wanted to continue a lot of our relation or not really relationships, but, you know, uh, connectivity towards the UTMB group. I guess this next question is two parted, but a based on what we heard from Michael Paletti in that article. And I guess what we've just seen in recent years, um, sort of catching up with where the sport is at, do you get a sense that they are amenable to change? And then B, if UTMB changes their policies as a result of all of this, does High Lonesome's policy towards UTMB change? UTMB seems amenable to some change. They're, you know, in the actually in the in the period between you know, High Lonesome and Twitter blowing up um, over this and us recording this right now, they've announced you know, a, a pregnancy policy um, that shares a lot of our personal pregnancy policies, similar or, um, components. And, you know, they've addressed some of the issues we just mentioned, you know, where they're sort of, as it's pointed out and they'll deal with it next year. So they certainly are to some degree amenable to change. And it, this sort of bleeds into the second part of your question of, you know, where do we as high lonesome evolve as they evolve? and their policies are evolving. Um, we might get into this later, but our policy is sort of based on two things. One is just the straight commercialization that UTMB is doing. And that's probably the more concerning one at this exact moment in time for us. Mm. Um, and so them purely changing their values and getting, you know, if you want to say, quote unquote, caught up and ahead of the ball, then that would certainly help it would make us want to reevaluate and have another conversation, but it doesn't address the other component, which is their sort of profits over people and monetization component that is at the root of their Ironman partnership. One other thing that I'm curious about, and this is probably more a personal question. I don't want you to necessarily have to feel pressured to speak for the race or for the sport as a whole, but in the case of UTMB's current stance on everything, do you think, it emanates from like a standpoint of ignorance and or a large institution necessarily moving slow due to like bureaucracy? Or do you believe that the current policies they have are what they are because it's a reflection of what they believe about all of these things that you care about, like gender equity, like pregnancy deferral, like the non-binary runner scenario? What do you think? You asking me, Caleb, not Caleb, you, Caleb, the race director. Okay, cool. Um, 
I, I don't know, to be honest. I, I, I hesitate to even speculate. I think in, in the trail runner article, Michael Paletti referenced that he just learned what non-binary means uh, the mm. previous year. And on the one hand, I appreciate his willingness to be transparent about his learning process. I think that's a difficult thing to do, especially in today's day and age, is to admit that you're yeah. slow or, or learning something and you're on the back foot. Um, and we've all been there. There was a point when every one of us learned something like that, you know? So on the one hand, I think the first part of your hypothetical is true. They are maybe learning slowly or just not exposed to the same places that other groups are. And so they're maybe not even aware that those are places that they need to be potentially addressing. Um, however, it's a global institution mm. with the largest resource pool, arguably the, the broadest base of, you know, if you want to call them consumers or customers, whatever. So to, to be ignorant is sort of hard in that scenario to me mm. because you're necessarily getting exposed to all of these divergent viewpoints and different cultures and different components. And so I, I don't know, the two don't reconcile very cleanly in my head. Um, and I'm, I'm not really sure how UTMB's internal structure works. I mean, I know how, how ours works. We have a process for this and we set it up and, and we try to make it fairly transparent. Um, but yeah, I, I don't, I don't know. I would hope that it's not um, either an intentional ignorance um, or an unwillingness to change, I guess. I would hope to, to give them the benefit of the doubt and just say that they're learning just like the rest of us and they're learning maybe at a slightly different speed or a different starting point. One more follow-up question on that. And I guess it's a bit of a thought experiment, but let's say like in this scenario, we've determined there's a consensus in the ultra running community. We all believe, for example, that the pregnancy deferral policy is just common sense. There's no disagreement there. And yet there's still an organization that is not following through on a policy reflective of that. When they do change, if they do change, are we a community that blackballs them for their mistakes or their transgressions? Or are we a community that recognizes that what they did was wrong, but there is a very clear path to forgiveness and uh, <laughs> inclusion, all of that kind of stuff. Like what are your thoughts there? Yeah. Wow. That is an interesting thought experiment. Um, it was funny when you were, when you're saying that whole thing, my mind immediately jumped to like the correlation with like, say a doping situation. What happens if yeah. an athlete's caught doping? What do you do? Um, and my gut instinct wasn't that scenario. If it was an athlete caught doping, they'd never run any of my races ever again. In fact, I have that rule. If you've ever been caught doping, you do not participate in a freestyle endurance event. Wow. Um, so yeah, it's an interesting question. Um, I would like to think in principle, and I think that this is actually reflected in reality as well in our sport, that we do forgive. Because if you look at what's at the heart of our sport, individual growth is critical to all of our, all of our ethos as individual athletes, right? We're always mm -hmm. trying to get a little bit better, make a little bit of progress, shave off a bit of time off that race we ran last year or something like that. And this mirrors well with that. Um, 
you know, whether you're slow to start or, or, or late to the party, if you get there eventually, I think that that merits um, a pretty inclusive response. I, I, would, I would caveat one more thing. Please, please. To tonality matters a lot here. If this is someone who's been fighting tooth and nail or dying on hills to, <laughs> to prevent this imminent and widely accepted change and they finally you know sort of concede rather than just like evolve i i would find that response to be a lot harder to be empathetic towards i think i'd probably you know just look at that and shake my head and be like yeah that's just not floating for me it's interesting right because i think about if i were to profile a lot of the athletes in our sport we are a sport of so many second and third chances and new <laughs> leases on life exactly. and I, I think i think your caveat on tonality is, is a big part of it. Intent goes a long way. Yeah. Um, maybe one more question on this UTMB policy. Then I have a bunch of other like philosophical questions I've always wanted to ask you. <laughs> awesome. Th this last question is about interconnectedness. And I know, for example, Western States is considered one of the more progressive races in our sport. And they have this non-binary runner policy that I believe High Lonesome has modeled their policy off of to some extent. But at the same time, it's a small sport. We're all incredibly interconnected as a result. And though the Western States is certainly independent, they do have a partnership with UTMB that I have to believe indicates some level of baseline respect and recognition for what they do in the sport. I guess my question there is, does that in any way complicate your relationship with Western States given their relationship there? Yeah, good question. Um, what's interesting about this is not only are we talking about Western states in the context of, um, you know, High Lonesome being a Western states qualifier, but also I finally got into Western states this year. So I'm running states. <laughs> um, so there's like a, a business and personal component to this. Um, I have a shit ton of respect for Western states. They are probably the only other organization that I know of that has the platform and could stand sort of, you know, quote unquote, toe to toe with a group the size of UTMB. And I have no desire to ever be in charge of a platform of that scale because I can't imagine how challenging that is. And I think Western States has done a phenomenal job of balancing a lot of potentially competing components while still remaining true to not only their race's history and values, but the broader values of the sport. Um, and I think it's a testament to how grounded that team is and the support that the community rallies towards them, um, either because of or for other reasons. You know, I, I, I think that I can't remember how long States has had something going on with UTMB or the World Series or the circuits that have been kind of going on since the late 2000s, maybe. Um, but this just seemed to me to reflect a, an existing position that they've had, which is some number of their elite spots go towards, um, I think it's is it two or four this year, maybe, go, go towards this World Series. Mm. Um, and if you consider, you know, they've got uh, what 130 some spots that that aren't in the lottery to begin with this represents less than three percent like would i do that no 
but are they completely in their in their right and purview to do that if they see fit? Absolutely. And and one of the things that you know outside looking in again that stands out to me is you know states has a really big focus on competition. They want to be a race where you know the top runners are coming each year to test themselves and and test themselves against the mountains and and the canyons and other runners and all that kind of stuff and it it creates a a really unique experience in a sport that oftentimes doesn't have that depth so for them to say well we've got an opportunity to bring in a few more elite runners um that sort of is consistent with that isn't it it's in par with it um and is that any different than them giving spots to another sponsor to then hand out to one of their team um runners or something like that it's kind of similar. Um, I don't know what Craig's or the board's position is on, you know, states or uh, sorry, UTMB's actual business model of acquiring races. Um, you'd have to ask them that. I um, I think I trust states in this position though, because mm-hmm. I think they've earned it. They've shown that they can balance a lot of things and that they're willing to be progressive um, where they can be. And I think they truly have the best interests of, of their community and the sport as a whole at heart quick break to give you another discount code. This episode is also brought to you by HVMN. HVMN are my choice for exogenous ketones. Back in October 2022, I was introduced to exogenous ketones at the Havilene 100. After some testing, they became a part of my daily routine to support energy and focus, and I've even started using them in the middle of long runs to support endurance and recovery. In 2023, my nutrition plan will be both high carb and high ketone, and for the latter, HVMN will be my product of choice. If you are interested in trying them out yourself and supporting the podcast in the process, use code SINGLETRACK20 for 20% off your next order at HVMN.com. With that, let's get back to the conversation. There was a recent I Run Far article that came out. I think it was Andy Jones Wilkins that wrote it, and I think it was in response to your policy and one of the thought experiments that he brought up was something that you actually mentioned earlier in this conversation that there are now 33 races that are affili- affiliated with and synonymous with the UTMB brand here in the States. A couple examples, Speed Goat, Canyons, Desert Rats, Grindstone. The reason I'm bringing those up, is it possible that the new races that are being added by UTMB that already have this culture, this history, this relationship with the local community, do you see them as capable of redefining or influencing the brand to some extent? Or is it the other way around that UTMB is just going to absorb them and their influences moot? This is another good thought experiment because it involves some speculation. UTMB is massive and it has a culture difference to North American races. And anybody who knows anything about the sport knows that your races and North American races are very different, um, both in feel and in scale and style. Um, so my answer, I guess, is, is multifolded. Firstly, I would love to think that some of these races that were acquired in North America by UTMB will have the ability to keep their roots sort of operate as these like independently owned and run brands, you know, but they're under an umbrella, but they remain that degree of autonomy. Um, I certainly hope that's the case. Um, 
I'm skeptical of that because the the business model that UTMB has uh, literally they've communicated this as their their intent is to buy American races and they have a list of criteria on what they're looking for and one of the for I might even be the first thing they're looking for is scale they want large scale races and that's one of the reasons why the US scene has never been a profitable enterprise for these large groups is because we don't get scale we operate on public lands and they're notoriously stingy with entrance in UTMB, you'll have literally, I, I forget what the total is across all of the UTMB events in, in that, you know, kind of event window. But I think in, in UTMB, there's over 2000 athletes. And I think combined, it might be up to 10. I'm remembering the numbers, right? Um, regardless of the exact number, it's astronomically larger than what we're getting now. And so if the intent is to grow these races, it's going to be hard not to see some dilution there because that's mm -hmm. part of what makes these races so unique is the intimacy that comes from these smaller scale events. What I think is the most likely scenario is that UTMB group is, is wise enough to realize that Americans don't want Euro races. They want to go to Europe for Euro races. They want to run American races or Canadian races in Canada or America. And they allow these races to sort of hybridize their business model where they are larger scaled, but they also retain sort of that flavor that's unique to not just the broader North American market, but their individual markets. Um, and we sort of get, you know, like maybe a Leadville experience similar to that, where it still retains a, you know, a lot of the connection to the community and some of the roots, but it also has a more corporate feel to it than it ever used to have. Um, and there's, you know, some growing pains involved in that process. Without necessarily naming any names, and I'm asking this question because obviously it's, it's common knowledge that UTMB has been scouring the country looking for races to buy up that fit their criteria. Have you heard from any fellow American race directors who either sold to UTMB or were pitched by UTMB about like what that pitch was and why it benefited them to have their race absorbed into the series? I have talked to another RD who was pitched by. Um, someone from UTMB. They did not want to sell, but did not indicate that in their responses, sort of played along and said, I'd like some more information, just out of idle curiosity, I think, to see you know, the answer to that question. Um, and according to them, the communication was really sporadic. Um, it, would, it just didn't feel particularly professional. And they eventually just got tired of it and, and bowed out without really getting any of the details. So um, I was hoping to, to get an inside scoop there, but obviously didn't. Um, I talked to one other person who has talked to one of the RDs who did sell. And I believe there's like an NDA or something in there that's okay. prohibiting a lot of these details from coming out. Um, I also don't know any of the RDs for these races personally. So it wasn't like a something I didn't feel a bit like prying to sort of email them and ask them for this potentially private information. I think this rolls perfectly into a whole nother conversation I have with, I want to have with you, which is sort of around this dichotomy of the classic local mom and pop style race versus these more corporate races. Do you feel that this UTMB system is a quote unquote threat to, uh, yeah, I'll call it like the local mom and pop race model. And if so, why? I do believe it is a threat. 
Um, I like to use the word grassroots. I also yes. like to use the word mom and pop, but grassroots is a little cleaner. Um, it, it is a threat because the entire, um, I, I, as far as I know, across the entire globe, this sport is completely subsidized from a racing perspective by volunteers. I know of only a isolated incident, two isolated incidents where races are paying for volunteers. And it, it is just anathema to me that we would think that it's okay to bring in a business model whose sole intent is monetization on the backs of a community foundation. It just, it doesn't work for me. And I am not alone in that. And I think there's plenty of case studies on just local races of races changing hands where this has come up, where um, races sort of, you know, die off and then come back under a new owner and there's issues with that. And I think it, it, at the root of it, it comes to this idea of, of money and there's good money and there's bad money and good money for me. And this is completely subjective. I recognize this to me. Good money is reasonable, like athletes earning reasonable wages, race directors making livable wages, brands that are selling, you know, shoes or apparel make livable profits and reasonable profits, but no one's killing it. Right. We're all just sort of, uh, fair and equitable wages. Um, if I was making a million dollars a year right now, people would eat me alive and they should, because it's bullshit. Um, I don't pay my volunteers anything. In order for me to pay my volunteers, my price would have to go up at Colorado minimum wage, almost triple, which would make our race well into the thousands of dollars, which is highly inaccessible to most everybody. Um, so yeah, I, I think the, the key part here is that it's an, it's an unapologetic money grab in a way. And it's couched, uh, and I, I really dislike the fact that we're lumping this idea of commercialization and professionalization together. They are not needed to be together. They're lumped together because the money makes the connection cloudier and murkier, but we don't need it. We've been professionalizing this sport just fine for about four decades. We don't need money to do that. Money's come in, of course, since the beginning, and it will keep coming in, and we'll keep professionalizing it. But I would, I would guess 95% or more of this sport has zero monetary stake in the, in the professionalization of this sport. It's just disposable income. You're, you're spending your money and your vacation time to come have an experience because this is a lifestyle sport. And so that is manifested in a tangible way with these grassroots races. They're these community endeavors where people come together to create a theater for us to have an experience. And when you add this level of money that Ironman is giving UTMB to acquire races, it's a categorical threat to that. So if we're listing off some of the quote unquote negative impacts to grassroots races, and I'm just going to say this back if I understand it, the first one is UTMB would create a downward market pressure for grassroots races to have to start paying staff. And that's unsustainable because it's already a tenuous existence on, on your part? I don't, not necessarily what I'm saying. No. Okay. I, I don't envision UTMB paying their volunteers. Um, 
I mean, if you look at the marathon space, I don't, I think a lot of those people are still volunteers, even though, you know, rock and roll marathons, for example, is owned by Ironman, hmm. which is owned in turn by advanced publications, which is a multi-billion billion dollar private equity firm whose last profits that were reported publicly in 2016 was just under 3 billion. Hmm. So if you ever asked me to volunteer for a $3 billion company, I'd laugh in your face. Of course, <laughs> I'm not going to, I'm not going to go deliver packages for Amazon for free out of the goodwill of my heart. Um, so yeah, I think I think the bigger threat is the loss of the values in this sport. As the priorities become more monetary, the elements that I look at in the sport as its greatest assets become less and less visible. Mm. And you can see that in professional sports right now. The only professional sport I watch with any regularity is um, English football, so Premier League soccer. And I support a team which was previously owned by a Russian oligarch. Lots of moral issues there. Um, and on that team, there was a player who, um, as a kid, had drunk driven and killed a woman. And he got away with no jail time. And he was one of the best-selling jerseys on the Chelsea team. Over a billion people uh, will watch a Chelsea game uh, in some capacity in any given year. And all of those people are sort of tacitly looking past this fact because of the spectacle of the sport. That is a world-class player with a gifting that few people will ever experience, and yet they should be in jail. Mm. And here we are pissing money away just so we can keep watching. And that's an extreme example. But you see that in the NFL, you see that in um, a lot of professional sports where there's this compromise of values once the spectacle becomes great enough that we look at it and we say, it's worth it. And so Go ahead. Oh, sorry. I was going to say, do you, are you suggesting that it's also an issue of influence where we'll start to see over time, smaller races start to mimic the values in the format of these bigger races? Oh yeah, absolutely. They'll have to, to stay relevant. Really? UTMB is, yeah, think about it. I mean, look at, here's a, here's a ridiculous example. I have avocados at my aid stations. Do you know, do you know how bullshit that is? I am buying <laughs> one of the most expensive fruit slash vegetables <laughs> to put at 13,000 feet so somebody can eat it after it's oxidized and looks like a you know, brown turd. It, it makes no sense. If, if you went back to the beginnings of Hard Rock and said, we're going to have avocados here, they'd be like, what? dude, I need Coke and Mountain Dew uh, and maybe some Oreos. Let's send this. Um, and that's a really small example of like the expectation just in aid stations has gone through the roof. Like people don't want to see trail mix anymore. No one needs trail mix. But it's, if you go to most, you know, grassroots races that have been around for a while and aren't, aren't, aren't really doing a lot different year to year, there's still trail mix. There's still a Chips Ahoy thing. And they don't have any fancy gels. There's, you know, not some crazy nutritional presence from a brand or sponsor. It's just like, yeah, it looks like a picnic and, and not a great picnic, frankly. So if you extrapolate that and say, let's, let's go to the more likely scenarios, live tracking, um, broadcasting, um, commentary, video content, scale, quality of the experience. You know, are you getting a lot more swag, you know, pound for dollar? Are you getting more from your money by going to these big events that have this huger budget that can give you a better experience, you know, better in quotations, of course. Um, 
it will make it a lot harder. There's already a disparity between a lot of events. You know, one of the things that High Lonesome has a reputation for is being a very high quality event. And we're able to do that for a lot of different reasons. But one of the biggest is the fact we have a great community behind us. But we also spend way more money out of like, you know, my quote unquote potential profits to give people that experience. And if my margin is terrible and UTMB can come in with a business model that'll give a better margin and even more, who's going to be successful in the long run? What would you say to the person who responds to you by saying, doesn't that require the vast majority of runners being convinced that the UTMB way is a better product? And you know, they might say also, there's always going to be a significant portion of the running community that wants that grassroots indie race experience that's in no way associated with um you know the 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 corporate commercial version it's like in music where you know you're gonna have the 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 great you know the top the american top 40 hits channel and then you're gonna have like uh (laughs) that indie rock station that some people will jam to yeah i think Mom and pop races or grassroots races are never going away. But if we monetize the sport more and more, there'll be a lot of attrition. And only the most successful or the most popular or the ones that have the best, you know, war chest basically to sort of weather the storm will be able to survive. And to me, to to dictate the future of a race on money is a travesty. Mm. Races exist because communities are passionate, because nature gives us these beautiful places to participate in. And to, to sacrifice that on the altar of money is just bullshit. But to your point, an easy paradigm to look at is the fact that we have this big push to shop local, right? Just you know, small business Saturday or Friday or Monday, whatever it is these days, right after Black Friday. And Whenever possible, I try not to buy from Amazon, but I live in a small mountain town. And the only way I can get literally certain types of food is to order it off of Amazon. And Amazon is not in line with my broader values, but I compromise because at the end of the day, I have an expectation of quality that I want and I find it however I need to find it. And so a hybrid outcome is likely where you have some mix of the two. But I, I will pay more money if I'm able to, to a local business here in Buena Vista, just because I want them to be able to survive. And I don't, I, I hope that we don't get to that point with races where we're literally having to vote with our dollar with such specificity, because if we don't, these places will cease to exist. Right now we vote with our dollar just because it's simple. There's a ton of races. There's not a lot of money. You can spread your love wherever you want and find a race that fits what you need. And so it's easy. But the model that UTMB is playing at, and this is a very long-term perspective on this, but the model they're playing at is conglomeration. And that's what we're looking at. Mm. Looking at more and more larger entities acquiring smaller and smaller races until you have the majority being um, you know, not independently owned. It's, it's a model that the running store business has been following sadly for a while now. Uh, And it's harder and harder for mom and pop individual stores in small, unique places to survive. 
you know, we, we started labeling as boutique now, which is an odd word to use to me because I think most of us would think of a running store as, as a potential heart of our local running community. So to call mm -hmm. it something so disposable as boutique is, I don't know, it's concerning. I have to announce my bias here, which is that I am mostly concerned with the professional aspect of the sport. I mostly engage with pro runners in the sport. And so I have blinders on in a lot of aspects. And I feel like you're a good person to ask because you are more well-rounded in who you engage with in the sport. Are you finding runners who, for example, experience these UTMB sponsored events, they're, they're going to those events and they're leaving those events feeling like this felt hollow, this felt out of touch, this felt assembly line-esque. Like, I guess the question is, do you feel like we're already starting to see what you fear from this model in, on the yeah. ground in the event experience right now? Yeah, I mean, obviously this is anecdotal, but yes, yes, I, I have heard that. Um, in fact, during the, you know, sort of the, the 48 hour window when this blew the most up on Twitter and people were um, you know, sort of the most um, involved in the conversation, I was getting a lot of texts from professional athletes that I've met over the years. Um, some were sort of just, you know, saying, hang in there and nothing more than just a little bit of a moral support. Um, but quite a few were also saying, yeah, I'm never going back. I don't like it. Uh, it's not what I want. I talked to so-and-so, they had the same thing, and, you know, and it's anecdotal. When you're a professional athlete, you have so much more at stake than an amateur. You know, your sponsor sponsors a race. They oftentimes make you run. It's part of that agreement. And so you lose a level of autonomy there. Um, so I'm not always sure that's the best litmus test to say, um, because I, I also know quite a few, you know, amateur runners, I guess to call them that have gone to these races and, and come back and had wonderful experiences. So I, I do think I, I, our race is just south of Leadville and Leadville has been, you know, on the, I don't know, on the conversation table since it got bought by lifetime fitness back in the early 2010s. Um, and I, I literally have friends that live up in Leadville that I run with on a regular basis. And I go up there on a regular basis and mm. Leadville is probably the most one of the most commercialized races in the hundred mile scene these days. And I ran Leadville in 17 and mm. I expected to be disappointed. And in fact, all of the pre and post Leadville stuff was rubbish. In my opinion, I actually couldn't stand it. Once the gun went off, I had a phenomenal experience. The volunteers were exceptional. The course is prettier than I expected it to be. It smoked my ass. Like, <laughs> I mean, it was great. It was a wonderful experience. And I'll go back because of that. But I know what I'm getting into. I know what that flavor is going to feel like. And I'll only, it's like McDonald's. You know, Leadville is like McDonald's. Sometimes all you want is a, is a Big Mac. It's a McDonald's. <laughs> but, you know, 99% of the time you're like, I don't want to eat this shit. Don't put this on my plate. But then that one time you're like, that is exactly what I want. The only thing that's going to scratch that itch is that thing. And, and Leadville and UTMB are, are probably going to be, you know, sort of like that where they're very specific experiences that at the right time in the right place and for the right person will be exactly the good experience they're looking for. And for a lot of other people, it might not be. Last question on this front. We're talking about this world where, you know, small grassroots independent races, their existence is threatened by the imposition of UTMB, are you already starting to see any circumstances where, for example, fewer people are registering for a particular smaller race as a direct consequence of 
the UTMB influence in our sport, or are we still a ways off from that? I think we're definitely a ways off from the UTMB influence. Um, I think this was the first official lottery that they had with their new qualification process. And, you know, in that same trail runner article, Michael play even referenced that they're going to have to make changes relatively quickly to see how it's working. So I think it's too early to say, you know, what exactly UTMB's direct influence is on us. Um, there's already a broader market trend, which is we have too many. I, I, I'm going to say a word and I want to preface this by saying it's going to sound shitty. It's not meant to be. I'm going to qualify it immediately. Okay. Okay? okay. And it's the word mediocre. Okay. We have an abundance of mediocre races. Um, and I do not mean mediocre and bad. I just mean your vanilla bread and butter race, right? It's just like, it's in a spot. It's fine. It's okay. It's got a good price, decent course, and it's simple, right? And we run those as like tune-up races, as training races, or just because our friends are running them, or we live there, right? We have like so many of those races. High Lonesome is successful because it, it's in a group of less than five races that spends any significant time above tree line. That's why it's been successful. At its core is because people look at the course and they say, I want to run that. It's also been successful because of the community and the value stuff, but put that aside for now. Everybody has a 50K. It's, it's, there's too many of them. And so there's probably enough people to sell out four of them, five of them in any given window, but we've got 10 of them. And so people are just spreading out the love. And so it creates this self-fulfilling prophecy where larger groups or not larger, sorry, like small to medium sized groups are saying, well, you know, I don't have the scale in any one race to be profitable very much. And I want this to be my full-time livelihood. So I'm going to start another race, which is also going to sort of only sell out a wee bit. Uh, and so then I need another one and you just keep adding these races until you have a portfolio of races. That's just not selling out. Um, and there's a bit, it's, I guess it's simple to say it's like a cannibalization almost where mm. we, we have too many options. The sport's not really growing fast enough rate right, to fill those options. And, you know, COVID added this huge complication. So I think we're already starting to see some attrition. There's some smaller races, shorter races that just aren't really coming back. People are tweaking things to fit. You know, maybe you offered four distances. Now you're only offering two because those were the two that were selling the best or something like that. So I think that's, you know, when we finally see, or if we ever see, you know, the root of your question, UTMB's specific influence, um, we'll have to be able to parse apart that broader market trend against maybe the UTMB specific component. I was going to say, it sounds from that description, like we just have a massive oversupply of races in America. Is that true to kind some of. extent? Uh, in places. Like, you know, the, the, the hot boxes of hot boxes is the wrong word, the hot beds, <laughs> <laughs> the hot beds of the sport, uh, you know, Colorado, California, big metropolis areas, right. Where they have yeah. a ton. I bet if you went to, you know, some of the smaller places, you, you know, they'd be, they, they'd probably want to punch us right now for saying there's too many races. They'd take a bunch more if they could have them. So it's definitely circumstantial. I know we are at the hour mark. Are you okay to chat for like 10 or 15 more minutes? Absolutely. My okay. headset keeps saying it's about to die. So I might have to switch earpieces, but I'll, no problem. No I'll problem. Keep cruising. Um, we've been talking a bit about the increasing commercialization and professionalization of the sport. I know that you have a somewhat pessimistic view about those trends, but do you see any scenarios where 
these phenomenons can actually enhance the values that you want to see survive and thrive in our sport. Yeah. I'd say just to perhaps qualify it, I don't have a particularly pessimistic view of professionalization. Okay. I have a highly pessimistic view of commercialization. Um, professionalization, professionalization, I'd say I'm, I have a relatively neutral position on um, because that's frankly the category I fall into. I'm a professional race director. It's not my sole livelihood, but it's, you know, certainly could be if I wanted it to wanted to scale it or had the, you know, capacity to get there. So I, I have a really hard time with the money thing. And I, I'll think I'll probably just stick with my pessimistic outlook. We've sort of already touched on at multiple points today that I think um, if we're in the space of reasonable money, it's the good money category and not the too much bad money category. I think we'll have continue to have a wonderful thriving sport. Um, if we tip the scales too far, then we hit my pessimistic side. I think the professionalism component is, is a much more compelling topic point, especially given, you know, kind of your predilection towards that space as well. Mm. Um, you know, I think there's, there's an undeniable component of inspiration that we all look for from the sport. And for whatever reason, we gravitate towards, you know, the, the lead athletes because they're doing these, you know, to me, they're superhuman feats. Like I'm, I'm a mid pack hero. I do not crush, um, <laughs> safe space. Um, <laughs> you know, and I look at some of these times and I have friends that put these times up and I'm like, Oh my God, how do you do that? You know? And if, if we're able to professionalize the sport to a level where these people can, can sort of be protected you know they're not destroying their bodies in a couple of years because of all the pressures on them where we're not hitting ots like i used to love jeff rose it was such such a crime that he got burned out so fast and it's still dealing with ots you know i i'm friends with mike wolf and when we lived in montana we ran together a few times and you know mike's an amazing human but he just got beat to shit and i don't think that's appropriate I'd love to see the money come in that we could basically protect these athletes and say, Hey, you don't have to base your entire livelihood on beating your body to the ground in three seasons. Um, I think it's great to see that we aren't necessarily always doing that with just the fastest people we're seeing, um, you know, sort of it's, I hate the word ambassadors, but it's kind of that thing. We're getting these people in the sport who aren't necessarily the most elite of athletes, but they're good ambassadors for the sport. They're showcasing human emotions and the human experience and the sports best components in really compelling and relatable ways. Um, and if we can encourage that and help that thrive, I think we absolutely get the, you know, the sport improves. Like anecdotally, we had a runner in one of our 50 Ks two years ago from Boston who listened to a podcast with Courtney DeWalter and had never run much in his life. His name's Paul. And he said, I can do that. If she can do that, she seems so normal. I'm normal. I'm going to try to run. So somehow he found a, found Westline Winder. He signed up for Westline Winder and he finished just after the cutoffs. And we had hundreds of people there screaming for him as he finished. It was one of the most incredible experiences I've ever seen at a finish line. 
And he got done, he got interviewed by like you know, multiple newspapers. It was really awesome micro story. He comes back the next year and uh, finishes under the cutoff. And again, you know, you know, wild adulation. It was, it was a cool thing. But I, th- I think of him when I think of this thing, because he found this random podcast with this fairly mic- small sport with one of our best ambassadors. And Courtney is just, I mean, a wonderful person and such a talented athlete, like a once in a generational talent. And to have her be such a relatable person on top of that, mm. it's amazing. It's incredible. And we have that in spades. I mean, think about all of the great athletes we know and how human they are. And, and so, of course, I want to see them thrive. I don't want to see them just grinding this out. I want to see them elevated. But it's got to be within these brackets where we're not selling out. We're just investing. It's a great point. I'll even share anecdotally on the media side of the sport. We're still in this era where I can shoot Jim Walmsley. Anybody can shoot Jim Walmsley a direct message on Instagram, or you can find like their email address or send them a tweet. And we're still in this era where they will respond to you because the sport <laughs> like, is just that small. Like our heroes it, are yeah. one, uh, you know, arms, arms length away. Yeah. They're so accessible. Like you would never work in bigger sports. <laughs> That's awesome. Anyways, last topic that I want to end on. I, I promise that we, well, maybe go directly to the philosophical veins of our sport here before we close up. And by the way, I've thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. It's been awesome to get to meet you. Um, last topic. We're in this crazy era where, you know, we're trying to create all these governing bodies. We're trying to establish order. Athletes are establishing things. I mean, that we're just trying to create like order, coherence, meaning, rules, values, et cetera, right now. Is it possible truly, do you think, for any person or group in our sport to claim that they represent the values of the sport? Or is it the case that our sport is too diverse in terms of points of view for this to ever be agreed upon? What are your thoughts there? I love this question. It is absolutely possible for groups or individuals to say they represent the values of the sport. It's possible they're wrong, but they can say it. I think many cases it's true though. The sport has, and I, I like to qualify this, You it, values can have this like moralistic overtone. And if that's confusing, if that's cluttering the water and the brain for you, just switch the word to culture. Mm-hmm. What's, what's running's culture, right? That's basically what this is. Um, and we do have a fairly uniform culture in this sport. And it's one of the things I love the most about it. And I think you, you end up with this, like, you know, fairly short, very broad list of key core values. And they're largely shared across most people. Not, not, not perfectly, of course, but like broadly. And then underneath that, there is a multiplicity of ways that those values are manifested and played out and um, displayed in the sport. And that's where I think we have this massive diversity, where we have these huge, it's like why we can have this conversation and everybody can walk away saying we're all still right, Mm -hmm. because we're still in that threshold of what's okay. Um, And I think it's, it's common for us to look towards individuals, entities, institutions, whatever they are, 
for some of this cohesion around these cultural values. And for better, for worse, in our sport, the two places that largely falls into is professional athletes and races. Um, and I think it's great that we're seeing some broadening of that perspective, where it's not just limited to these sort of two relatively small components of our overall sport. Um, I think the diversity under those key points is also one of our best attributes because we solve complex problems with diverse solutions and we need diverse thought and diverse opinions in order to get enough options to sort of solve these problems. I mean, think about it again, from a running experience, if you're going into a hundred miler, you're problem solving for the next hundred miles. That is your job, solve problems. And mm -hmm. the more that you have people around you who say, Hey, I've had that happen. You haven't let me help you. The better off you are. I had blisters for the first time in a hundred miler bighorn last year. And it ruined my race from a time perspective. And I just sad walked for like 30 miles. I got to the finish line and someone was like, dude, you just popped them. And I was like, <laughs> what? That's bullshit. I popped it and I walked in my hotel room and it was fine. And I was like, God damn it. You know? And so I, I think there is a lot of diversity. And I, I think some of the people perceived our UTMB thing as being like, we're claiming this um, I don't know, almost like preacher-esque moral superiority where we can dictate the conversation and uh, certainly not what we were trying to do or even want to do. But I, I do think it's it's very safe to say that as a sport, we do have these sort of institutions and groups that sort of, um, they're sort of the emblems, I guess, and embody those values in concrete and tangible ways. And we use those people as focal points. Awesome response. Um... Caleb, it's been such a pleasure to have you on the podcast and we'll have to have you on at some point as well as Kelsey for a round two, because yes. uh, I think we could devote a whole entire episode to like the state of race directing and <laughs> what it means from like a career path perspective. I love like the, the inside baseball component there. So thank you so much for coming on, talking about this long form. I think that, uh, what you're doing for the sport is incredibly valuable. It's important. And, uh, yeah, thanks for answering the tough questions. Yeah. Well, thanks for having us and for helping set the stage to have these conversations. I think it's a great asset uh, and it makes for a lot of good, uh, good conversations and ways to burn the miles. So thanks for adding to it. We'll make sure to link to all of the high lonesome information in the show notes. Do you have any particular final thoughts or calls to action that you want to leave listeners with? Uh, man, I think the... The simplest thing is just support the people around you, you know, community for us has always been the focal point. And if the, th if the threat that I perceive and commoditization of the sport is real or not, we'll insulate ourselves regardless if we're there for each other for the whole time. Um, and so however that looks, just get out and be a part of your community go to the run groups, volunteer at the races, find those causes, help the people around your town, like do what you got to do. Um, but just be there for it. Cause I think that that is core is what I love the most about the sport. Thanks for listening. Before we sign off, if you are a fan of the show, please consider supporting us with a rating and a review in your podcast player, a donation on Patreon, or the use of our sponsor discount codes in the show notes. We really appreciate your support. Thank you so much for listening, and until next time, I'm your host, Finn Melanson, and you have been listening to the Single Track Podcast.